Good morning. Welcome to the new semester of theological equipping. If you feel cold, normally everyone's cold in TEC because there's not enough bodies in here to heat up the room, but we do have one of our four AC units out, but it's okay. Okay, so if you're cold, just scoot in closer to the nearest human and just let that body heat radiate onto you and you'll be fine. Now, moving on. Uh, We are starting a new semester in theological equipping, but before we get into that, let me pray for us, pray for our semester. Father, we love you. We pray that today and every other theological equipping after this, uh, this semester would inform us how does theology apply to our life? How does all the study that we do, all the thinking of you that we do, uh, change our hearts, transform our lives, make us uh, look more like your son and that your spirit would just minister to us. This wouldn't be uh, just an academic exercise that informs our heads, but rather be something that transforms our lives, starting with today as we look at what is discipleship? What does it look like to be a a disciple uh, of your son? So I pray that you would uh, make our words clear, that this wouldn't be abstract or something difficult to grab a hold of, but rather uh, practical, in a very good way, practical, and just clearly pointing out biblical truth that uh, does transform us. But we know ultimately that you do that work. You're the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So I pray that uh, you would just work in our hearts, that your spirit would uh, transform us, Lord. So pray that in the name of your son. Amen. So uh, this semester, we've moved out of church history, which we were in for about a year. Uh, Before that, we were walking through systematic theology. We did some apologetics, did some worldview, things like that. And this semester, we're going to be walking through what we're calling applied theology. We were calling it practical theology. That is kind of the the academic name for it, but we changed it. One of you brought up, you know, we would always make the clarifier. Practical theology, that's not really a good name because all theology is practical. Uh, And then uh, one of you brought up applied theology might be a better name for it. So we agree that's what we've changed it to, uh, applied theology, which even that is a bit tricky because all theology, everything we do in thinking about God, thinking about who he is, thinking about the gospel is applicable to our lives. Your view of who God is, your view of the Trinity affects everything that you do, affects everything about you. Uh, so I would hear, uh, typically hear questions like, how does the Trinity help my marriage? You know, you get those kind of questions. What, what's being asked is, how does that abstract thing up there that when we talk about the Trinity, when we do, how can there be one God and three persons, each fully God, things like that, how does that affect my real problems? How does that affect my actual life? That's the heart behind the question. And the answer is, uh, are you asking how does who your God is? How does the character of your God affect your marriage? Well, first of all, he's the only one who has the power to change it. He's infinitely gracious and infinitely merciful. So in your sin that's actually destroying your marriage, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's forgiving. In fact, that God, that triune God, the Father, saw and saw that sinfulness, saw that brokenness, and sent his Son to mend it, sent his Spirit to actually indwell you and change your heart so that there might be flourishing in love. You see that. You see how your view of God, your view of the Trinity has everything to do with solving your marriage, has everything to do with your real life problems. So all theology is applicable. Charles Spurgeon says uh, the coals of orthodoxy are necessary for the flames of piety. The coals, the, you know, the, the foundation of what we believe is absolutely essential for this Christian living, this burning in our hearts, this holy living that we seek to do. So all theology is, uh, is, is applicable. We're not doing the head-heart divide. We're not dividing theology in your spirituality as if there's some sort of ivory tower academia that just is for smart Pharisees, and then there's actually living with God on the ground. We never separate those two. But there is some value in saying things like, how, how does my view of God affect my life? How does all the theology, how does my view of the end times affect, you know, how, how I live in the world? Now that I know who God is, how do I pray to him? How am I meant to go before him? Is he a distant, angry God? No, he's a loving father, so how do I approach him? Approach him this way. Now that I know the gospel message, now that I know the gospel of redemption, how is that meant to inform how I relate to others? 
How am I meant to share that? How, how, how does that affect how I look at people overseas? And you know, all of a sudden we're into talking about missions. Now that I know that I'm made in God image, God's image, that I've been redeemed, that I've been called to glorify him in all that I do, how does that affect my work? How does that affect my physical health? You see that. So, so we're going to take uh, some time this semester to just hone in. We've done the theological study. We've looked at who God is, the character, the nature of the gospel of our salvation. Now we're going to ask the how question. How does all of that beautiful study affect our day-to-day lives? How does it affect work, our prayer lives, missions, evangelism? We're going to look at all those different things. And so we're going to ask that how question. And essentially foundational to that is what we're going to talk about today. Essentially what we're asking is, what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it look like for you and I in 2022 now to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? We thought the first thing we should do in entering the semester is actually answer that question, what is discipleship? We don't want to get into all the other stuff without defining discipleship. We're going to define that today, and then for the rest of the semester, we're going to show what does that actually look like? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Uh, And in our day, discipleship is one of those terms that is in danger of Overuse, you know, there's, 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 a, there's something to when you use something over and over and over again, it just kind of loses its touch. It becomes generic or we almost, it becomes white noise to us. Uh, my grandparents, my, my dad's parents, uh, when they got married, uh, one of the first weekends of their marriage, they went to stay with my grandmother's parents, I guess my great-grandparents. They went and stayed in this tiny town in Georgia that had a uh, train that would go right by the house. I mean, it was literally 30 yards from the house. And it was, you know, my grandmother grew up in this house. It was my grandfather's first time in the house. So in the middle of the night, they were sleeping, and uh, the train came through. And my grandfather told me this story. He literally thought a tornado was coming through the town and actively, at that moment, destroying the house. And so he jumped on top of my grandmother to protect her. And him jumping on her is what actually woke her up, not the train. So she shoved him off, very annoyed, and said, what are you doing? And he's like, you know, the roof's coming off. Literally, that's what he thought. And she just shoves him off and says, this is the train. Go to sleep. So he, it was the first time he had heard it, and it was as if the train was coming through the house. For her, it was the billionth time she had heard it, and it did not wake her up. It did not disturb her sleep in any bit. It was just white noise to her at that point. And so there's a danger when we all the time use terms like gospel-centered or terms like discipleship that we just say it so much it loses its meaning and it becomes abstract. We use it for everything. Oh, that's a gospel issue. You know, eating vegan is a gospel issue. And you're like, okay, what does that mean, gospel issue? So we want to define what does this mean? Even on Parkway's website, you'll see what's Parkway's purpose. And it says glorifying God by making disciples. Okay, that's, our, that's the purpose of this church. But again, what does that mean? Disciples of what? Disciples of who? What is discipleship in the first place? Why is that so important to Christianity? So today we're going to go back to the drawing board and answer those questions. So you see in your notes, I'll kind of walk through these. Let's go back to the first century. What does the word disciple mean? It simply means a pupil or a, a student. Okay, someone who follows and learns from a teacher. And in Jesus' day, in the first century, it wasn't just Jesus that had his 12 disciples. Every teacher, every rabbi would have had disciples, would have had students that followed them. Okay, So even John the Baptist, we see uh, Andrew, who later is one of the 12, Peter's brother, was actually a disciple of John the Baptist before he was a disciple of Jesus. We see that in John 1. The next day, again, John, John the Baptist, standing with Two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And two of the disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And one of the two that heard John speaking and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So this isn't just a Jesus thing, his 12 and Jesus. This is normal for any teacher, any rabbi in Jesus' day would have had disciples. But disciples would have come to the rabbi and would have asked, Can I follow you? Okay, a disciple, they're learning, they're learning the scriptures, and all these different rabbis have different interpretations of the scriptures. And so the disciples say, kind of like if you're familiar with the process of getting a PhD today, I want to study under that guy. And so a disciple would go to a rabbi and say, can I follow you? And it's up to the rabbi to say yes or no. And the rabbi would typically give a fairly difficult test to see, you know, does this guy really know their stuff? Are they serious about studying under me? Because... The disciples, who your disciples are, reflect the reputation of the rabbi. Okay, so if your, you know, disciples 
being an idiot about town, people saying, Who, who's your rabbi? All of a sudden that's going to make you, you know, look really bad. So they, would, they were very, they wanted the best of the best of the best that followed them. That's normal rabbis calling disciples. And the core of kind of the Jewish community in Jesus' day, the core of Judaism is the scriptures, our Old Testament, right? Moses, uh, the Psalms, and the prophets. Or the law, the prophets, and the Psalms is kind of the summary of our Old Testament. But the issue wasn't if they knew the Bible, Almost every Jewish boy would have had the Old Testament memorized by 13. The, promise, or the problem wasn't memorization of the scriptures or knowing the scriptures. It was interpretation of the scriptures. And so you have different rabbis that have different interpretations. And so one of the motivating factors of who you wanted to follow was based on how did they see this interpretation. And you see that, you know, in some of the gospel stories when different people come to Jesus and say, what's the greatest commandment? What they're asking him is, what is your interpretation of the Old Testament and what the greatest commandment is? And they're waiting to see what his answer is. That's where we get love the Lord your God. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So a rabbi's interpretation would kind of define how the community lived and how their disciples lived. And so, yeah, a disciple would pick a rabbi based on their interpretation so they could study under them, and the disciples had a deep, deep desire not just to be informed by their rabbi, but to actually live like their rabbi. Okay, so that's happening all over Jesus' world. A lot of the Pharisees are having, you know, teachers have these disciples following them. And so when Jesus shows up, he is a rabbi, he's a teacher. He's called that all the time. During the, the storm, what do they what do the disciples run in when Jesus is asleep in the midst of the storm? What do they yell at him? Rabbi. Do you not care that we're perishing, right? He's a rabbi, but there's something very, very different about Rabbi Jesus compared to all the other rabbis, okay? And that's going to show us a little bit about what does it mean for us to be a disciple of this rabbi. The first thing that we see that is different is Jesus is calling the disciples, not the other way around. It's not them coming to him saying, can we follow you? He gives them this test to make sure the best of the best of the best of the best are actually following him. Rather, Jesus is the one that goes to them. Matthew 4, 18, and walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting their nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left their boats and followed, uh, left the boat and their father and followed him. Matthew 9, 9. And Jesus, passing from there, saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So you see... It's not the typical way of disciples coming to this rabbi that they want to study under. It's the total opposite. Jesus going to them. That's the first thing that's different. Second thing, notice who he is calling. He's not calling the best and the brightest prospects. Remember, a disciple reflects his rabbi. Okay, You want the best of the best if you want to be seen as the best and the best. And who does Jesus call? Uneducated fishermen a tax collector who every devout Jew would have hated, a zealot who would have hated the tax collector more than anybody else. Uh, Outside of the 12, there's women who are following him. There's former prostitutes that are following him. I mean, the people who he is calling to follow him could not be more lowly, could not be more sinful in the eyes of their society, and could not be more rejected. And there's something different about this particular rabbi, who he is calling. Third thing that's different, there is a huge, huge cost to following this rabbi. It's not just passing a test, giving the right answer to some sort of Old Testament test, and following him isn't just something to, you know, boost your resume. Rather, following this rabbi, following Jesus, costs you your life. Costs you your life. Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know the story of the rich young ruler, this man who says, Rabbi, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives him a quick test. Do you follow uh, the Old Testament law? Follow this, follow this, follow this. And what does he say? I've done this since I was a boy. Boom, I passed your test. Jesus says, okay, one more thing. Sell everything that you have, give your life away, essentially what he's asking, and follow me. 
And this test, he does not pass. What happens? He goes away sorrowful for he had much wealth, right? He does not, he's willing to pass the Old Testament test. He's not willing to give the ultimate sacrifice. He's not willing to give his life to follow his rabbi. It will require your life to follow him, but it's the only way to find true life. Whoever would try to find his life will actually lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a different cost to following this rabbi. Fourth thing, he's the Messiah. Okay, we're ramping it up a little bit. He's the Messiah. He's not just another strong leader like tons of rabbis would have been. He is the promised son of David. He's the promised deliverer that all the Old Testament prophets pointed to. One day there will be an eternal king who will sit on the throne forever. All the nations will flood into Zion and worship him in his perfect kingdom of justice and, in, uh, and peace. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. It's called the great confession typically by uh, different commentators and scholars. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Who do people say that I am? Here's their answer. And they say, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What are people's common answers? You're another great leader, like the ones that we read about in the past. You're another great leader. You're like John the Baptist, Elijah, you know, these great prophets. And Jesus says, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And we know later he's not the type of Messiah. He's not the type of Christ that they're expecting. They're expecting a a physical deliverer from Rome to throw off the shackles of the state, right? They want to get back to David's day where they're on top of the world, all their enemies are subdued. It's actually what Peter is expecting when he makes this great confession. You're the one who's going to subdue our enemies. And Jesus has to rebuke him because why? He's after a far, far greater enemy than Rome. He's after the ultimate enemy, the enemy that's been plaguing the entire world since Genesis 3, sin, death, and the devil, this ancient serpent. That's who Jesus is after. He's the Messiah, Another thing we see that's different about this rabbi is his relationship to the scriptures. Jesus is not another rabbi pointing to the scriptures uh, to show how that guides our behavior. He's not just another rabbi with a specific interpretation that would be kind of unique and guide our behavior. Rather, he is the one the scriptures point to. He's not pointing to the scriptures and saying live this way. Rather, the scriptures point to him. The scriptures point to him. John 5, 39 through 40. You search the scriptures. This is Jesus talking to Pharisees. Again, men who would have known the scriptures better than any of us, perhaps all of us combined. And Jesus says this. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus isn't pointing to the scriptures. Scriptures are pointing to him, Luke 24. And he said, this is after Jesus' resurrection. He's on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, all that the scriptures have pointed to, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory Notice verse 27. This is one of the things I wish Luke, instead of giving us kind of the summary verse, I wish Luke would have actually told us, you know, give us 30 more chapters. I don't care, Luke, but tell us what Jesus actually says to them. But he just gives us the summary. And beginning from Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right? We get this long path where Jesus simply tells them, you know, you're, you're clearly missing the scriptures. Let me just real quick show you how the entire Old Testament is pointing to me. Right? And Luke just gives us one verse instead of, you know, the 30 chapters we would want. So following this rabbi isn't just learning from another teacher. It's finding the one that the scriptures are pointing to. You're not just following a rabbi who's going to teach you things about the scriptures. Rather, you're following the one the scriptures are meaning to teach you about. This, by the way, is the entire uh, interpretive method that the early church used. The early church, the first kind of five centuries, are typically accused by us of just being over-the-top allegorical, you know, they're finding Jesus under every rock or something like that, which is somewhat unfair. They would say, 
The scriptures point to Jesus. The scriptures are about this person, the person of Jesus Christ. So if your interpretation doesn't ultimately get to him, it's incomplete. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, one of the first uh, great uh, early church fathers, gives this beautiful picture where he says, the scriptures are like a mosaic of the king, of Jesus. And each scripture is like a jewel that goes into this beautiful mosaic. And when you step back, you see that it's all about Jesus. And what heretics do and what false teachers do is they take a verse out of context and they rearrange that mosaic until it's a picture of a dog or a fox. Then he says, and an ugly one at that, just to give a nice little stab, right? The scriptures are about him. And if your interpretation doesn't ultimately get to him, they do make some mistakes. I'm not saying all their interpretations were great. But if it doesn't ultimately get to him, they would say it's incomplete. Why? Because the whole scriptures point to him. They're ultimately about him. Uh, Tim Keller, who's a retired pastor in New York, says, uh, and and, uh, he says this in a bunch of conferences and then in his book on preaching, this long quote that I have I'll read. He's just basically pointing out, here's how the whole scriptures are about Jesus. We see the explicit Old Testament passages that point to him, you know, Isaiah 30, uh, 53. But more than that, he says this, Jesus is the true and better everything. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passes the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out for our, our acquittal, not for our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answers the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whether he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can say to God, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestles with God and took the blow of justice we deserved so that we, like Jacob, can receive only the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and used his, uh, and used his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people uh, and the Lord and mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then, who then intercedes for us and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate kingdomly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who cast out into the storm, uh, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. He goes on, Jesus is the true and better temple. He's the true prophet. He's the true sacrifice. He's the true lamb. He's the true light. The Bible is all about him. It all points to him. That's the difference between this rabbi and any other rabbi in his day. And there's one more thing. He's God. You know, I saved the best for last. There's one more thing that's different about this rabbi versus the other teachers and the other rabbis in the day. He is God. He's the teacher of teachers. He doesn't just show us the way. He is the way. He doesn't show us the way to truth. He is the truth. He doesn't show us the way to life. He is the life. He is God, God's son, God himself. Over and over again, if you've ever noticed, now that you've started up your Bible reading plans, when you get to Matthew, you'll notice. Uh, when Jesus calms the storm, the disciples don't have the reaction that we think we would have. Like, wow, okay, he can do some stuff. What is their reaction? Fear. Terror. Why? Isn't that weird? Don't you think? And that's what we teach our kids. Jesus calms the storm. He's great. What's the disciples' reaction? Terror. Why? Because they know their Old Testament. And they know that only God commands the winds and the waves. And they're realizing more and more, bit by bit, this isn't who we think it is. This is the, must be the one who's holding us together, the one who created us. This is God. There's something different about this rabbi. John 20, 26 through 31, this is kind of the crescendo of John's gospel, which centers around uh, Thomas, Thomas's actual confession. Thomas gets kind of a bad rap as doubting Thomas. That's how we remember him. But he actually gives this confession of who Jesus is that John is writing as his kind of crescendo of his whole gospel. John 20. 
Eight days later, this is after the resurrection, after Thomas has said, I won't believe it unless I put my finger in, you know, his hand holes and in his side. I'm not going to believe that he's raised. And this comes immediately after that. Eight days later, his, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he, uh, then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do, uh, do not disbelieve, but, deli- but believe. And Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. There's the confession. And Jesus said to him, You have believed because you, or have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And here's John summarizing his gospel. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's something different about this rabbi versus all the other rabbis. And because there's something different about this rabbi, there's something different about his disciples. Now we're getting into kind of the heart of the teaching. What is discipleship? What does it mean to be a disciple of this rabbi? We are not just informed in our heads. We're not just given a new interpretation of the scriptures for us to think about and debate with others. Right? We don't just go around saying, I did my studies under Rabbi Jesus. Rather, disciples of this rabbi are brought in to his very life. There's the theological term, we're united to Christ, or Paul's favorite term, in Christ. You and I are in Christ, or with Christ, or through Christ. All these different things that we see where we don't just walk after him on the earth like the 12 did. We're rather united to him where his rights become your rights. His blessings become your blessings. His joy becomes your joy. And I think the most beautiful picture of this and actually the clearest picture is Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. I've got them listed there. So let's walk through these and notice how many times, I've got it underlined for you in case you wouldn't notice, I'm making you notice, how many times uh, Paul is highlighting this reality of our being united to Christ, united to this rabbi. Look at verse 3. This is Paul opening up his letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, where? In Christ, with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purposes of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Jesus, in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth where? In Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance and have been predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him, there it is again, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What are the benefits of you being in Christ, because you and I are in Christ, we've been united to this man, this rabbi, this God man. We get every spiritual blessing, we get election chosen before the foundations of the world, we get adopted into the very family of God where the praise of his glorious grace, we get redemption, we get forgiveness of sin, we get to know the mystery of God's will, we get an eternal inheritance, and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. All of that flows out of your union with this rabbi, you being a disciple of this rabbi, you being brought into his very life. But Paul's not done. Ephesians 2, this is us outside of Christ, the first three verses. And you, you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's you and I before being united to Christ. And then praise God for verse 4. 
but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together. How? With Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming of ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us where in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Again, what are the benefits of being in Christ? He's made us alive when we were dead. He's raised us up. He's seated us in the heavenly places. We get the immeasurable riches of his grace and we're his workmanship created this incredibly zoomed-in, intimate language of his workmanship. All of this flows out of your union with Christ. Say it another way, you become righteous when you're united to the righteous one. You become holy when you're united to the holy one. His life becomes your life. His, life, his blessing becomes your blessing. His rights become your rights. His joy becomes your joy. His father becomes your father. Because this rabbi doesn't just teach you stuff but rather brings you into his very life. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is far different than following any other rabbi. You're not just informed, you're transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there it is again, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old self, the old uh, wretched self that's by nature a child of wrath has passed away and the new has come. Romans 6, 5-11, If you have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that uh, we no longer would be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now we have died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. No longer, uh, death no longer has dominion over him. For death has died. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you and I must also consider ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. The old self has been crucified with him and the new self is raised with him. The resurrection Jesus has, you and I will one day have. These bodies will go into the dirt and those who do our funerals, if they know the gospel, will praise God that one day the body will get out of the dirt and will be glorified and spend eternity with him. The chains of sin have been broken. We've been made clean. We've been made alive. Perhaps the best summary statement Paul gives in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the reality of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, of following this rabbi. And we know as the story goes, uh, he is crucified, raised, and ascends to the right hand of the Father, sends his spirit to indwell his disciples and commissions them. Jesus' disciples are meant to do what? Go make more disciples. John 17, this is Jesus praying to the Father in the upper room right before going to the cross. As you, Father, sent me into the world, so I have sent them, the 12, the disciples, into the world. I guess the 11, into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, not just the disciples sitting at the table with him only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may also be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's Jesus praying 2,000 years ago for you and I in the upper room, not just for the disciples only, but all who will believe from their word. The disciples, disciples, or in our case, the disciples, 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 and so on until however many, until you get to us. And then Matthew 28, the, the very famous Great Commission, Jesus, right before he sends to the Father, Jesus came and said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always 
till the end of the age. So the disciples are told, disciples of Jesus are told, go make disciples of Jesus. Okay, you see this, people like Paul, where he says in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Okay, so John goes and makes a disciple of Polycarp, who makes a disciple of Irenaeus, who, you know, a couple others, and it gets to your grandpa or whoever shared the gospel with you until it gets to you. Right, the disciples make disciples, make disciples of Jesus Christ until it gets to us. And what this means, being a disciple isn't like any other disciple in Jesus' day where it just kind of would have been resume building. It's not just you grow in you know, a promotion like you would at work or reach a certain level of nirvana or anything else. Discipleship is about a person. It's about the person of Jesus Christ, knowing, loving, trusting, living for the person of Jesus Christ. He is the goal. Him. Not what he gives you, although that's part of it, but he himself is the goal. What's the goal of friendship? What's the goal of your marriage? It's knowing and loving that person, right? Getting closer to them. Again, not just what they'll give you. Again, if you marry someone because of their stuff, that's called, I believe, Kanye calls it a gold digger, uh, right? That's not the best, right? He, he's saying she's not a gold digger, right? It's, it's not a good thing, okay? You, you marry someone for that person or your close friendship. If you're just befriending someone because they're loaded or something like that, that's not the best motivation. It's to know them, to, to explore them, to, to uh, be in fellowship with them, care for them, and be known by them. It's the same with being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Being a disciple simply is knowing and loving and trusting and glorifying and delighting in him, our rabbi, right? our God, our rabbi. And then, of course, in that is getting others to come as we delight in him and as we glorify him, knowing this is the end by which we were created, and so calling others to come and see him and know him, making other disciples. This is the goal. I mean, it's, it's almost so simple. It's like, why do a lesson on it? You know, being a disciple is knowing and loving Jesus, but we miss this all the time. Uh, two years ago, about like a month after I moved here and started working at Parkway, Zach and I were having lunch, and we went into the parking lot and got in uh, his car, and some guy came up to us in the parking lot. So, of course, Zach was reaching for his firearm. And I was like, calm down. Let's see what he has to say. And uh, he rolled down the window, asked if we were pastors. We said yes, uh, and then he encouraged us, which is great. And then he said, you know, what church do y'all go to? And we told him Parkway, and he said, what are y'all about? And uh, Zach was like, we're just making disciples of Jesus Christ, glorifying God. And he's like, yeah, but what do you like about? And I was like, that, I don't know what you're asking. He's like, yeah, but, you know, like, what will people get when they go there? I'm like, we hope that they encounter a living God and, and love Jesus more and they're conformed into his image. And he genuinely, he asked us about a thousand times because he did not understand the answer. Our church is about making disciples of Jesus Christ because he was expecting, you know, I don't know, miracles or diversity or whatever. And then I, I think I understood him a bit more when I entered into the kind of the church planting world as I was picking other church planters' brains. And I mean, literally, I was talking to one guy who was telling me about the process of like his residency and they go through and they're trained and then they pitch their church to the elders to see if they want to support it. And that confused me. So I said, what does that mean, pitch? Like, shouldn't that be boring? Uh, we want to preach the gospel and make disciples of Jesus like the church has for 2,000 years. And he was like, yeah, yeah, but, you know, what's your thing going to be? And I was like, what is happening? What is this hook thing? And it's always, you know, we're diverse or we're whatever. It's always something other than Jesus that's made the central piece of what does it mean to be a disciple, Right? And so we've apparently lost this, or at least a huge piece of evangelicalism has lost this very, very simple idea. Discipleship is about the person of Jesus Christ, knowing him, loving him, being conformed into his image, worshiping him, delighting in him, glorifying in him. We're not primarily here a club with shared values, right? We're primarily a people whose lives are about this person, whose lives are in, belong to this person. Again, Paul puts it, in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appeared, 
then you will also appear with him in glory. Why should you set your minds on the things above? That's where your life is. It's not here. Here, you has died. That child of wrath has died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Is there anything more wonderful than that? When he returns, you will return with him and reign with him in glory. Why? Your life is in him. That's what we're about. Being a disciple is our life being hidden in him. Why do we grow in holiness? Why is that a goal of being a disciple? Because he's holy. We want to be conformed into his image. Why do we pray? Because he is who we've been made to know and commune with. And so you would naturally talk to the person who you are made to talk to and enjoy forever. The, what you, you lay your requests before him because he's the only one who can do anything about it because he's the all-sovereign God of the world. Why do we hate and kill sin? Because we want to remove anything that would ever take our eyes away from him and put our eyes back on ourselves and our own works or put our eyes on uh, the things of the earth, sinful things of the earth that are contrary to our holy God. Why read your Bible? Why memorize scripture? Because we want to know his word that points to him. You see that everything is about him. Everything is meant to point you to him. Everything we're going to talk about this semester is meant to funnel your eyes right back to him. Discipleship is about him. So the next natural question would be, okay, we're disciples. That's great. Now what? How do we actually do that? Uh, Claudia is very, very practical, so it's a good thing that I uh, married her because I'm, I'm usually way up here. I'm like, Jesus is beautiful. I'm like, great. How does that change? And I'm like, okay, I don't know that answer. So we're going to do a whole semester on it, right? How do we actually do this, right? We're Christians 2,000 years down the line, and here's the first answer. You don't grow as a disciple. How do we grow as a disciple? You don't grow by looking back to your own efforts, your own works, uh, there's a scene at the end of Saving Private Ryan that I'm going to spoil. You've had 20 years, so plug your ears if you were getting around to it, if this was a New Year's resolution. Uh, at the end of Saving Private Ryan, they save Private Ryan. Uh, and as Tom Hanks is dying, because he gets shot, uh, you know, Matt Ryan walks over to him, and he grabs him and says, what, two words. Does anybody know? Earn this. And then uh, it's... It, Fast forwards however many decades and decades and decades and old Ryan is back at Normandy and he's at Tom Hanks' grave and he kneels down crying. His family's watching him off in the corner and he says this, every day I think about what you said to me on that bridge. I've tried uh, to live my life as best I could. I hope that it was enough. I hope that in my eyes I've earned what you did for me. And I think what a terrible curse evil Tom Hanks put on poor Ryan right at the end of his life, every day trying to earn this incredible sacrifice that was done for him. And that is what so many of us for 2,000 years have been tempted to do with the gospel. Christ does this incredible redemptive work, and we say, thank you, let me show you how grateful I am. Justification, thanks, I'll take sanctification from here. And we immediately look back to our own works, right? We put the weight right back on our own shoulders. Paul is immediately facing this with the Galatians, and he has some colorful words in Galatians 3.3, and they're going back to the law. They're looking back to themselves in sanctification. Are you foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now perfecting by the flesh? We don't grow as disciples by looking back to our own efforts. That's foolishness. That's literally sprinting away from the gospel. Rather, we grow as disciples, not by adding on, but actually by growing deeper into the gospel we've already received. By growing deeper into the fellowship with Jesus that we already have, who we already have. Discipleship is not adding another merit badge. Rather, it's deepening into what you get the first moment of your salvation, of your conversion, knowing Jesus Christ being brought in, deepening in this understanding of the gospel. Dane Ortland, who's a pastor and wrote a book called on the subject Deeper, says, To grow as a disciple of Christ is not adding Christ to your life, but rather collapsing into Christ as your life. It's simply wading deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the infinite ocean of Jesus Christ. It's not, cool, you saved me, great. What's next? Moving on from him, graduating the cross Rather, it's growing deeper into the gospel that we've received. Again, Ephesians 3, I read this verse often. Paul's prayer, after those, we saw those two incredible chapters of being in Christ, and then chapter 3, he prays for those Ephesians. And what is his prayer? For this reason, I bow my knee to the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you, O disciples, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and may be filled with the fullness, filled all uh, with the fullness of God. That's Paul's prayer. Again, notice that's not Jesus, thanks, let me move on to something else. Or Jesus, thanks, let me take it from here. It's growing deeper and deeper and being filled with the fullness of God, knowing the unknowable, comprehending the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. It's continually returning back to what he has done for you, who he is, the fellowship that he's brought you into. We grow in Christ, not by moving on, but by returning to him. Uh, The author of Hebrews, whoever he is, gives us a beautiful picture in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run the race with endurance, that, or with endurance run the race that is set before us. Life is a long, it's not a sprint and it's difficult, a long, you know, race. Running with endurance, but here is how we're meant to run it. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our Faith, Not just the founder and then you're the perfecter. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy uh, that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's how you and I are meant to live and grow as disciples. Setting our eyes on him knowing he is the founder. He is the perfecter of our faith. And returning, he's the one for the joy set before him endured the cross. We grow in Christ as we look to him, see that he is the one who's actually doing all the deepening. How do we stop this growth? Very easy. Take your eyes away from him. Take your eyes away from him and look back to yourself. Take your eyes away from him and look to sin. Look to yourself. Uh, I I was a a sprinter. I know it doesn't look like that anymore. Uh, But in high school, I ran track and I ran the short ones because I was not good at running races with endurance. Uh, run about 100 yards and then lose. And so they were like, well, let's stop you at 100 yards. And so I would sprint, and as faster people would pass me, a natural reaction is to kind of tighten all of your muscles and use more muscles, but that actually makes you go slower. If you watch, like, the fastest people in the world uh, in the Olympics running the sprints and watch their cheeks, they just beautifully bounce, and their arms are just like a gazelle. Why? They're just totally relaxed. Because in sprinting, the more you relax, the more you rest, they actually, actually the faster you go. And the more you tense up, the more you try and use more muscles, the slower you go. And in the Christian life, it's somewhat of a parallel, but the more you look to your own effort, the more you tense up and try harder, you actually go backwards. You don't just go slower, you go backwards. The more you rest, set your eyes on him, knowing he's the one that's the founder of your faith. He did it in the first place, and he's the one that's going to see it to completion. The more you'll grow. And then looking to sin, turning your eyes away from it, and just letting the truths of God grow dull in your heart. Looking to other lesser pleasures that are actually poison, uh, you know, replacing uh, affections that should be for our God with things that are actually going to kill you. But notice both of those, what's the problem? You're looking away. You've moved your eyes away from him. Robert Murmick Chain, an old Scottish pastor who died at uh, 29, said this, let us learn much of the Lord Uh, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settle on you in love. Rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him and let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so that there is no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. Look to him and let him fill your heart. And as you grow, you'll delight more in him. Your, your glass, in a sense, is a sense of which you have this glass of delight in God that's full. And as you grow, it's not like, oh, I only have a certain capacity. God actually widens your glass just keeps giving you a bigger glass. There's a, a, a scene, a page in Prince Caspian uh, where Lucy, who is, you know, lived in Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and then they come back, meets Aslan the Lion, who's Jesus for the first time, and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. 
And he says, that's because you're older, dear child. And she says, not because you're actually bigger. And he said, no, you'll find the older, the more you grow, the bigger I will seem. And what Lewis is getting at is in, in writing that is that's exactly how spiritual formation works. That's exactly how growth as a disciple works. The more you grow, he's not getting bigger and more majestic. You're just getting a bigger glass. You're just being able to take in. Your roots are going a bit deeper in the one you've already been brought into relationship with. You've already been brought into fellowship with. The more, the deeper that you grow, the more beautiful, more majestic, more lovely, more glorious he will be to you. So... Don't take your eyes off of him. Don't look to yourself. Look to him. So for the rest of the semester, we're going to show the means by which we look at him. How are we meant to do that? We're going to look at scripture, scripture memorization. How do we read the Bible? How do we study the Bible? Why? Because his word points to him. We're going to look at prayer. How do we go before him and commune with him? How do we bring our requests before him? How do we talk to this one that we're looking to? Fasting, rest. How do we depend on him? How do we let go of, of all these stresses and anxieties that we cling to in our, in our crazy day and just let him be sovereign over the world. How do we live as a community? How do we treat our physical bodies, physical health, things like that? We're going to look through all of these things and show simply the means by which we look to him. We keep our eyes fixed on him. Again, the goal this semester, it will be a failure. Uh, this semester we walked away and said, Man, I know everything there is to know about prayer or about Bible study or about whatever. If we were just more learned at the end of the semester, the success, the goal is simply what Paul says in Romans 8, 25, being conformed to the image of his son. As we look to him, we want to be more like him. We want the spirit, not me teaching or Jeff teaching or whatever, the spirit to actually do the work in our hearts to make us look more like the son of the living God, our rabbi. Jesus Christ, that the disciples would look like their rabbis. Let me pray for us, and then Jeff will come up for questions. Father, we love you. We love uh, that we can only have this conversation because your love for the world was so great that you sent your son to come among us and not just show us the way, but be the way and, and, and bring us into his Life And I pray now that your spirit, as your spirit has sealed us with this glorious salvation, your spirit would, almost like a magnet that can't pull away, just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And that every lesson this semester uh, would be just helpful, just really helpful in knowing, here's how we do this. Here in this crazy world, the fastest world and society that probably has ever existed, here's how we slow down. And here's how, with a billion things on our plate, we... Do them faithfully with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And here's how we raise kids with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And here's how we read our Bibles as we've got a billion other things to do at work and things that demand our attention. Please just do a miraculous work that you would conform us into the image of your son. And we would love you more as a result. And we would be disciples of Jesus that in a world that is uh, certainly drifted away or that's always been away since Genesis 3, we would look peculiar and look attractive as we have a peace that... Uh, the world cannot understand. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.